Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. I don't know who he's talking about, but he ought to fire him quick as he can. My name is Mark. I am a sexaholic. Uh, how are everybody? My sobriety date is April 25th, 1999. My disease can and has taken the form of compulsive masturbation with or without porn. Didn't really matter. Binge use of porn in film and magazine form. Destructive dependency and adulterous relationships bringing about the end of my first marriage. Voyeurism, exhibition, poor, poor custody of my eyes and mind, fantasy, intrigue, all of this to cover up a feeling of worthlessness and impending doom and a myriad of defects, including but not limited to defiance, envy, laziness, arrogance, anger, vindictiveness, and narcissism. So, Mike C., where did I learn that? Thanks, Mike. Uh, I want you to know that since my first convention back in 1994 in Syracuse, I've wanted to be here. I've wanted to do this. Uh, I guess the lesson would have to be there that uh, you need to be very careful what you wish for because you just might get it. Uh, it's a joy to look into your faces. <clears throat> I would like to say, first of all, my personal gratitude to the New Jersey Intergroup for this amazing honor. I'm grateful to Essay for being big enough to become my higher power for a time until I could find one of my own. I'm grateful to Roy K. for starting this unbelievable fellowship. I'm grateful to all the sponsors I've had over the years. Stu K., Skip, Stephen O., Jess L., Todd F., and Robert M. So, that I can use the majority of my time to get to the benefits of recovery and solution and to avoid the horrors of yet one more drunk log. I'm going to give you my bottom four. The events in my sexaholism career that told me that I was powerless over lust. And then I want to get to my bottom. This is a pretty powerful bottom, so to speak. But first I want to give you the events that led me down this path where I had come to believe that lust could restore my life to sanity. Thank you for getting that joke. I really appreciate that. Because <laughs> we could have a problem. Uh, have an entirely new group. Um, I remember the first time I viewed porn like it was yesterday. I was eight years old, and a young man brought one of those brand-name magazines out onto the playground, and I saw her. I saw the superwoman. I saw the fantasy woman of a lifetime, and uh, I knew that I had to have more of that, and she would restore my life to sanity. And uh, I, I didn't know what that was. I didn't know whether it was the woman or the pictures. Uh, and just to hedge my bet, I went after both. Uh, the second thing I did was I learned to masturbate by seventh grade, and I couldn't wait to get home from school to do it again. And I had this sneaking suspicion that it had to be wrong, and I didn't know why. So therefore, I had this double thing. I was both shameful and exhilarated by my new secret life. Uh, I had sex for the first time in high school with an older girl, and I thought, yes, this rocks. 
Now, let's do it right. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. And I proceeded to try to seduce and have sex with every woman I took out, met, or became remotely acquainted with. Now, powerlessness. Thank you for that, too. I appreciate that. <laughs> Along with the really the, 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 the desperate shame of masturbation came the case of the if-onlys. If only I could have sex for the first time, I'll, I'll stop masturbating. Didn't work. Uh, if only I could get into a physical relationship with sex only. You know, no strings. It was the 70s, after all. Um, I'll stop masturbating. If only I can get into a, a meaningful relationship, I'll, I'll stop masturbating. If only I can get married, if only I can have a kid, if only I can fly to the moon, if only I can win a million dollars in the lottery, whatever it was, I just wanted to stop masturbating, and none of them worked. Not one single one of them worked. Uh, I didn't know I was powerless yet. Adultery. Uh, that's the worst shame I've ever experienced in my entire life. And, you know, my religious training is extremely clear on this matter. It's not like I belonged to the first church of do your own thing. No, no. No, no. I was totally aware. I was even aware in the process. I was aware that what I was doing was wrong, and I had this funny thought. How did this happen to me? What am I doing here? And I didn't have an answer. Uh, after being married to my wife for nearly 10 years and countless dalliances, and I'm, I'm using dalliances, I'm going to define a dalliance as, as really basically getting a full stomach of lust without, you know, going all the way. Uh, near misses, flirtations, and three occasions of full-blown adultery, I'd done it one more time, and my wife had asked me, um, Punkin, um, I need to know what happened during the Sarasota gig. Now, the background on that was that I had told my wife every single time that one of these things happened. Real nice guy. And, and to further that, what I used to do is I used to try to make it her fault. I was a real prince, ladies and gentlemen. Um, just a quality individual. Um, and I told her the story, and upon the words, and we had sex. Real delicate, don't you think? Uh, she had this funny little habit, and she did that thing. And she used to close her eyes, and they would, they would flicker a little bit. Well, uh, my wife did that little thing. She closed her eyes, and she flickered her eyes a little bit, and she opened her eyes, and she had died. I watched this woman, this beautiful woman that I would married to, die emotionally right in front of my eyes. I never, ever want to experience that again. And with God's grace, I don't have to. Needless to say, she wisely asked me for a separation, a trial separation. I think, you know what I think a trial separation is? I think it's a separation that leads to a trial. <laughs> Just a thought. Um, but we separated shortly thereafter, and she wisely divorced me a few years later. Now, the fourth thing on my list was kind of the scariest for some reason. You know, being an adulterer, I guess I could handle that for some reason because it sort of made me a stud. But I had masturbated to the point to where I drew blood. And I don't, I don't know, there's just something very strange about that. And, and, and I couldn't handle it. And this is where I, I consulted a friend that's not in the program today, and he asked me not to use his name, Rookie. Um, <laughs> 
And, uh, you know, he's a spiritual friend and he belongs to my spiritual tradition. And, and I, and I kind of talked to him. I said, you know, I, I got this problem with, you know, the M thing. Yeah, the, I don't know. You know, can we talk about it? Yeah, we'll talk about it. And he said, you know, I used to do that. I thought, oh, thank God. Wow. I thought, see, I'm normal after all. Um, cause all I need is somebody to validate me one time and I'm back off into the tracks, right? But not this time. This guy told me, he said, yep, there was a year where I was working away from home and, um, and, uh, my wife was living such and such place and I was living in such and such place and I just thought that would be a, an easy second, you know, a substitute, if you will. I said, okay, well, so how many times did you do it? I gotta know numbers, okay? I don't know, I don't know what that's about. And he said, I don't know, I didn't count them. I said, well, can you approximately, he said, what did you think I did? Put notches on the bedpost? What's the matter with you? I said, come on, just, just humor me. Oh, I don't know, 30? I said, in a year? He said, yeah. I don't know, that, that, I said, man, I'm lucky if I do it 30 times in a month. And he, did, he said the most profound thing then. He said, huh. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a, quite a moment for us both. Huh. Well, uh, that huh must have meant something because uh, I said, well, maybe I need some help for that. You said, maybe you do. <laughs> well, so what happened next? You know, by this time, ladies and gentlemen, it's not easy for you to imagine, but I was homeless. Uh, I lived less than a mile from here in the back room of a Newark, New Jersey office building. And if you know anything about Newark, New Jersey, good. Uh, don't tell me about it, okay? Uh, I used to have little tricks that I used to do in Newark. Uh, I used to walk around, and I had this certain walk that I would put on like I was something, huh? And somebody would slow down on the street, and I'd put my hand in my vest. The stupidity of that to this day still sort of scares me. What if somebody had challenged that, you know? I would be speaking from an entirely different place. I got into the rooms of Sexaholics Anonymous in January of 1993, and upon entering, I knew almost instantaneously I was home. I heard people's story, and I related to them, and I believed them, and I heard them, and I listened to you, and you told me what to do. And I knew how I got this disease. I knew where I got this disease. And the relief of finally knowing what the problem was was overwhelming. So what did I do then, right? I grabbed on it with all I had, and I worked a great program. I don't think so. (laughs) I went to a whopping one meeting a week. I was working the gift of Step Zippo. My sponsor was a man named No One. And I had done this magical mathematics, and I could go without masturbating for four days on a meeting. And uh, and I magically added that up, and I figured out that I'd have to only go to two meetings, and I'd have one day credit. Well... See, I can figure this out. I can, I know what to do. You tell me what to do and I'll do it. Well, guess what? I started doing the deed every three days. Cunning, baffling, and powerful, right? Well, I was working this half-baked program while practicing the principles of my previous program of lust and continued to worship the power greater than myself, lust, and continued to practice these principles in all my affairs. And thank God I finally hit a bottom. 
I had a job that took me overseas, but was quite certain I was out of danger because it was spiritually based. Isn't that sweet? Uh, cunning, baffling, and not powerful. My disease does not care, ladies and gentlemen. It does not care. My, and, and, and my pheromones were pumping like a garden hose. And I, I acted out on night, September 1st, 1993 with this this incredibly strange woman who professed a similar spirituality, and I crossed yet another boundary. She was a newlywed, and I got to live with that. And I'd hit a bottom of uh, just an unspeakable bottom. And on that day, I had decided I was going to kill myself. And I had a weapon in the house that I was going to use. It was a twenty-two rifle. And I had ammunition, and I had I was making that decision. And the only reason, one of the very few reasons that I didn't do that thing was that I'd heard a story on the newspaper, on the news. Some guy had tried to do it. He had put the barrel of the gun in his mouth, and he had pulled the trigger with his toe, and he had missed the part of his brain that killed him. And the tragedy there is not that he missed the part of his brain that he had killed him. Now, look, I've got a problem bad enough. I don't have a huge brain in here, so it's a very small caliber bullet. You do the math on that one. The problem was that the very people, the very people he was trying to save his tragic existence were the very people that were condemned to change his diapers for the rest of his life because he was a vegetable. And I made a few phone calls instead. I made a few phone calls instead of killing myself. One of them was this very guy I spoke of, and one of them was my one of my sponsors. And uh, one of the ladies that I met probably four days into my recovery is here tonight, and I want to. Th- I, I can't thank her. I won't thank her. To, I, I've already thanked her earlier, and I won't, don't want to mention her name because it'll embarrass her. But I realized for the first time that women were not my problem; I was the problem. That was one of the first things that I learned when I got in this problem. And if you're new, learn that now. Save yourself a hell of a lot of problems. You're the problem. I'm sorry to break it to you. Okay, <laughs> just trying to make it easy on you. I began this working a, a, a weird program. It was not a perfect program, but it was something. I called this one guy, the same guy, one to five times a day. No talk of sponsorship, just accountability. And we would check in. We started checking in with this extremely complicated thing. I'm willing to do whatever it takes today to stay sexually sober, including but not limited to phone calls, prayers, kneeling if necessary. You know the shoelace trick? where you actually get down and pretend you're tying your shoelaces so nobody will know that you're actually praying. <laughs> and this agreement ends at the end of 24 hours, and at that, at the end, I, I may choose to pick up again. At, well, that wasn't working. And after a while, we shortened it to 24 no matter what. And that worked for us. Ten seconds on the phone, and I was ready to face my day. 24 no matter what. And you know, if you're new and you're scared of having a sponsor, <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> he told you. Uh, if you want a medium ground where you can get your feet wet and find some guy with a little bit of time or the same time as you, you and you two guys call each other every day and just commit to 24 hours, you can do this program for 24 hours. You know what? That's what everybody has to do. It's a 24-hour program. Even when you find a sponsor, keep it up. You'll get pissed off at each other. You'll screw it up. You won't tell each other the truth, but you will get sober. 24 no matter what. I got sober, but that guy didn't make it. And I miss him. He stopped calling and did things his way and stopped talking about less. Well, I finally got a sponsor, a legitimate, true sponsor. And I went to the convention in Syracuse in 1994, and I had a whopping 90 days. 
I met my future sponsor, the Bozeman Hammer. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy, for knowing that that name. I gave him that name. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jess. Jess is here, by the way. I asked him to attend. Um, Jess L., who in February of 2000 fully recovered from his disease and went to the big meeting in the sky. Well, I started listening, and I started making phone calls, and I started checking in my lust, and I started sponsoring and making meager attempts at the steps, and I began calling my sponsor and went to a lot of meetings. Um, would you please note at this point the difference between having a sponsor and calling him? <laughs> it's an important differentiation, okay? Because uh, I'd had a sponsor before, and uh, I didn't call him, and I, I wondered why that didn't work for me. I remember starting to deal with depression. Uh, depression is really prevalent in this program. And, and, and I called, I made the mistake, uh, Harvey will get a great laugh out of this. I, I called Jess about depression. Now, the joke there, <clears throat> folks, Jess was not big on what we would call sympathy. Uh, <laughs> if you wanted sympathy, you probably needed to call somebody else. But Jess was really practical. And I'd like to give you a little a little impression of what that phone call went went like. I called him up and I told him I was a little bit suicidal. And he says, "Well, I got news for you. You can't keep your sobriety date." <laughs> what? Why would I care about my sobriety date? But okay, whatever. Because it's the ultimate acting out. Oh, oh. So, so then I said, uh, so then he says, um, so do you, uh, do you live in an apartment complex or, no, do, no, I remember what he said. He said, uh, you want to keep this depression or you want to get rid of it? Oh, listen, I'd really like to keep it for a while. Cause I'm, no, no, I'm really enjoying this. It's a great time. <clears throat> no, I didn't say that because I knew that I would <clears throat> be wounded. Severely, emotionally, physically. Oh, it's a horrible mess. And I said, uh, I'd, I'd like to get rid of it. He said, okay, good. Would you like to, uh, would you live in an apartment or you live in a house? I said, well, Je uh, what I wanted to say was, oh, well, Jess, I, I just moved into a $3 million mansion and I'm just having a great time because early recovery is so profitable. <laughs> I had the spirit of sarcasm. What do you think? I said, um, I said, I live in an apartment complex. He said, well, I'm going to tell you what you want to do. I want you to get yourself a black trash bag, and I want you to go outside, and I want you to pick up trash. <laughs> you hear that, Jess? That's for you. The only deal is you can't get caught. You have to sneak around like you did in your addiction. I said, why? Because your damn grandiosity, that's why. Good point, good point. So I said, uh, okay. And I hung up the phone, fully secure that I was not going to do that stupid exercise because I surely had better things to do than that. But then I had this great idea. I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do it just to prove to that old fool that it doesn't work. Well, I got a paper bag, I got a trash bag, and I went outside. It was a beautiful day. First time I noticed, frankly. 
got out there and I started picking up trash and I'd go around and I'd load it up and about 20 minutes later I spotted a stick somewhere and I got distracted and was carving and you know whittling on the stick and about an hour later I looked up and depression was gone I had no explanation for that it was the first time in my sexaholic career for lack of a better term that I had a, a place where I could actually associate an action with a feeling in other words Take the action and the feelings will follow. I never forgot it. I mean, every time it felt bad, you'd see me with that little brown paper bag. I was outside picking up trash. <laughs> My career turned around. I have no explanation like this. I'm an opera singer. Most of you know that. And I, w- I was unemployable and I was unemployed. You know, a- a- an arrogant sexaholic a- as an opera singer, uh, unemployed. Oh, what a concept, huh? <laughs> And you got, listen, you listen, this is the performing arts. You gotta know it's bad if in the performing arts, I'm too scary for them. <laughs> so, uh, so I had this master class in downtown Newark and I was singing for this pretty famous director and I, I was starting to change things and I was starting to change the way I sang because I was changing the way I was living. I was changing the way I was acting. I was changing the way I related to you. So I changed my singing. And I sang, and he said, wow, that's about the best I've ever heard that aria done. He said, uh, how'd you like to sing for New York City Opera? Well, this is what happened in my mind. I said, listen, I've sung for City Opera before, and they didn't like me, and if they want me, they'll come and get me. <laughs> what I said was, thank you, sir. That would be fine. <laughs> it was one of the first times in my sexaholic career that I had been given the gift of the gap between the impulse and the action. It's important, right? Isn't it important? Yeah. The next thing he said is, uh, well, I'll make the call. What did I think? No, you won't. You're going to forget me the minute you walk out of the door. What did I say? Thank you, sir. That would be fine. (laughs) Impulse and the action. So he was good at his word, shockingly. And uh, I went over and I auditioned for City Opera, and I got a year's worth of work. Make a short story long. Short story long. Uh, I got a year's worth of work. And my agent called me and he said, listen, I want to tell you this because I know, I know you're on a spiritual journey and I want to tell you this. He said, they asked me the funniest question when they, when they made the offer. They said, what's happened to Mark? <laughs> and I said, what? He said, no, they said, they didn't ask you how is, you know, is he, is he taking voice lessons again? Or, uh, you know, did he take some acting lessons? What, what's happened to him? It was the first time that I had an inkling that I was having a spiritual experience. God was taking care of me. I don't know why, but somebody gave me a car. My, I, I was very rough. I'm still rough on cars, but I'm better. You know, I actually changed the oil once a, a, a year. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, cars were burning up on me. Cars were dying on me. And I, I, even, I even killed a car that wasn't even mine. You know, <laughs> nice guy. It was actually my sister, so, you know, she forgave me. Like... And, um, and somebody called up a woman that, uh, woman that I almost acted out with said, you know, my boyfriend's got this car and, uh, he wants to get rid of it. So what kind of car is it? It's an Oldsmobile. I thought, okay, that's practical. And, uh, he, I said, what does he want for it? He said, he didn't want anything for it. He just wants to get rid of it. He doesn't want to see it again. And I, and I got in that car and it was really comfortable and it rode well. And I have to say, I, it was one of those moments where I really, I, I started to get it. I started to see that God was for me, me. The sexaholic, the pervert, the guy that had broken his wife's heart. It was the first time. I have an air conditioning story. It's, it's, you know, 
It was uh, it was Father's Day, Father's Day, 1994. I called Jess again for compassion. Um, I said, uh, I said it's Father's Day, and I'm feeling a little sorry for myself. You know, he said, uh, I said I'm not I'm not feeling good. I don't feel like a very good father. And you know what? I wasn't. I wasn't a very good father. So you know, what are you going to do? And he said, Well, uh, take the actions. You know, why don't you act like me? And I said, What do you want me to do? Slap my kid around a little bit? You know what he said? That's not funny. <laughs> he said, take the actions. Take the actions. And immediately upon hearing those words, I, I saw the face of this man named Howard who was dying of ALS. But he was, he was this fun, buoyant human being that had really been very kind to me. And I took my son and I went over to this house and we were playing around and having a great time. And I was mentioning, I was, I was trying to, I was, I was being of service, right? I was being service to this poor man who was sick. And I said, I said, wow, I said, I, she says, how are you liking your new car? And I said, oh, it's great. It's the only air conditioning I have. He said, what do you mean? I said, there's no air conditioning in my apartment. It's hot as hell in there. He said, really? Picked up his phone, called his son. Within 15 minutes, he said, I want you to go over to my son Bruce's house. I went over to son Bruce's house. They pulled an, an old air conditioner out. Within 30 minutes, I had put it in my window. And for the first time in several months, sitting in front of that air conditioner with it blowing on, you know, high, and going, wow, God really does care. It was, it was an amazing time. I got about three-plus years of sobriety, and I just kind of got my got myself all worked up to get remarried. And I was getting permission uh, to date and, uh, and a permission and instruction on how to do that. And here was the instructions. Go out with 50 women at the same time. No, he didn't say that. Uh, no one more than three times. No sex of any kind, obviously. But don't be in a hurry. Don't be in a hurry, me. Don't be in a hurry. That's, that's, that's funny, actually. Now, I know how this sounds. It sounds like the disease, but, you know, go divide and conquer. Go all 50 and put them in your harem. But it really wasn't. It was an exercise, and it was, an, it was a really important exercise, and I want you to know, I only made one woman mad out of 50. Listen, I can't t- say that tonight. Someone's going to be mad. You know, at least one in 50 is going to be mad. I never learned so much about women as human beings in my entire life. Uh, I learned that they are not what we thought they were in the rooms and not what they thought they were when I was acting out. They're terrified. They're damaged. They're angry, just like me. And uh, that was a really important time for me. At the end of the exercise, I was given permission to go steady with a woman. She was very spiritual, but she was also extremely damaged sexually and really didn't handle or honor my boundaries well. And you know what? I wasn't prepared to defend them that well. Uh, somewhere in the middle, I started half-measuring. I started engaging in, what do you call that, teenage foreplay. Let's call it that, half-measuring. Yeah, right? Uh, yeah, not, nothing serious, of course. Oh, I'd check part of it in and I'd be remorseful and all that. But I was taking hits. I was taking regular hits. And so what does one do with that, right? Break it off. Hey, listen, I'm sorry. You're not honoring my boundaries. I got to go. Talk about it, right? Hey, sponsor, listen, I got a problem here. I need to check this in. Well, what are you going to do about it? I don't know. What do you think I should do about it? Nope. Cunning, baffling, powerful. I keep these little half measures to myself, little stores of lust that I needed to get through the day. 
And in one of those half-measure sessions with this person, and I'm quoting a person in this room with this, I had one of those look-maw, no-hands orgasm. My body had had enough of this unspeakable torture. The relationship did not survive. Neither did my sobriety date. There was no way I could keep it. There was no way I could justify it. I called a lot of people, and I checked it in. I went to 90 meetings in 90 days, including the Daytona Convention of 1988, where I met some of the people in this room. And I started supplementing with AA meetings. And uh, with the help of a member of this fellowship and the following statement, which was heard on the tape. Let me see if I can do this right. If you think you can drink in this program and stay sober, good luck. (laughs) He's sitting very close to here. I I won't embarrass him. I checked it in with this person. I checked it in with a member of this program, and I said, listen, this is what's going on with me. This is my, what my drinking does. And he said, you don't need to say anymore. You need to get into AA. Well, I did. And um, uh, later, and, and, and I've enjoyed that sobriety for quite a long time, later I went back over the steps and see where I'd gone wrong in the relationship. Okay, I was, I, it was easy to blame her. That's what I've done, done all my life. It's your fault. It's not my fault. Um, It had all come down to personal powerlessness. I had said in my heart the four most dangerous words any sexaholic can ever utter in his whole life. You know what they are? Let's all say them together. I can handle it. Right? (laughs) I had come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore my life to insanity and excitement. And I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of lust as I understood it. Well, in this process of coming off the drug again and a newfound powerlessness and accountability, I prayed a prayer regarding relationships that I'll never regret. And it kind of went something like this. God, my picking mechanism is clearly broken. I am asking you to pick someone for me because I don't want to live my life alone. I'm willing, but I don't want to. And as a seal of this covenant that I'm making with you not to pick for myself, at the very first sign of a relationship, I'm going to run like my backside is on fire. (laughs) But as long as we're doing business, I'd like to give you my wish list. (laughs) Why not, right? I got his ear. I might as well ask, you know, ask and you shall receive. And I made this absolutely impossible wish list for a woman because I knew what I needed. I thought I did, but I was willing, and, and, and I was willing to take what God had for me. And I have to say, the wisest thing I did was I tagged my prayer with these words, and I strongly advise this: Nevertheless, higher power, Thy will, not mine, be done. Within seven months of that prayer, I met my wife of eight years, eight and a half years, who has borne me three beautiful sons. I could not have done that without this program. Now, here's where things got a little dicey. Remember, I had a whopping seven months of sobriety, and I'd met this wonderful woman who met every one of my wish list requirements and then some, shared my spirituality, and was seemingly the one. But I only had seven months. So I talked to the people in the program and asked them, and asked them about it, and everyone said, hey, listen, you've had a slip. This is not good. You're just not ready for a relationship. So after meeting this woman and taking direction, I ended the budding relationship with a phone call, which went something like this. Hey, listen, I don't mean, I'm not trying to lead you on or anything, but I'm just not ready for a relationship. To which she responded, that makes sense. Smart woman. Uh, and that should have ended it. Uh, that you say something like, well, see you around, you know, good luck with your life, have a nice life, something like that. We talked for another hour and a half. 
Why? Because I wanted to lust? No, because I asked her a very important question. I wanted to know who her higher power was and how her relationship with her higher power. She gave me the most profound answer that I've ever heard. And I hung up the phone and I knew that the obsession was gone and I knew that lust was gone, but was replaced with the sweetest sensation of selfless love I've ever felt. And I still have that to this day. Most of the time. Um, so what am I supposed to do? What is one supposed to do? Well, I, so remember the guy from California? Remember the guy I talked about from California? Well, I asked him, you know, he helped me the one thing with the, you know, masturbation thing. I might as well ask him one more time. He gave me some very interesting counsel. He said, why don't you, uh, why don't you fast and pray? See, he had been my spiritual advisor for years and everyone had said to dump her and I had, but I had this thing in my heart and it wasn't going away. So he suggested a time of fasting and praying. And I, I, I didn't know what that was. What is fasting and praying? Was that like you don't eat donuts or what? You don't eat corn chips anymore? I don't know what that is. Well, I got a little bit, uh, and, and he, he began to tell me that every major discipline, every major religion, religion has fasting in it. I thought, okay, that's good enough for me. I'll do what you say. Took a time of fasting and prayer. And um, I took down an ancient text from a religion, and I began reading, and I came upon a startling passage that really spoke to me. And I can't say it here for obvious reasons, but suffice to say it was no accident. I heard God's very, very quiet voice instructing very quietly to proceed with caution. Caution. What is that actually, caution? Do you know? (laughs) I don't. But I was given instructions. Daytime dates. Dating in groups. Walks. Golf. Low pressure stuff, right? Well, the love was growing and I finally had to break down and tell my sponsor, listen, uh, I have decided to date this woman. He fired me. Uh, and after a while and after some resentment, I, uh, I saw that that was really his only, his, op- his only option. I had told him nothing else. I just simply dropped the bomb and I said, listen, I'm dating this woman. You know, Merry Christmas to you and your friends. Uh, I'm dating this woman. So I had to go searching for a sponsor and, and, and no one would sponsor me through this. Well, I copped this secret resentment against the program and decided to go it alone. My present sobriety date is extremely close to our wedding anniversary. Whoops. After we were married for some time, I just, I just could not make myself to go back to SA. Resentment, you know, I didn't want to count days. Besides, I was, I was actually very happy and I was sober by, by SA's definition. Uh, I wasn't experiencing lust that I knew of. So I began staying sober from lust, sort of, kind of, kind of, on uh, on meetings, on AA meetings, and uh, that worked for a time. I even got an AA sponsor who is still a dear, very dear friend of mine. In fact, he sends me a lot of guys from AA who he knows has lust problems. But God had some other plans. He wasn't done with me yet. I was on a job in the beautiful city of Charleston, South Carolina. Wow, no applause. Usually that gets, thanks, thanks. One guy. Come on, Charleston, you can do better than that. That's lame. Uh, I was with my pregnant wife, my two-year-old son, and my mother-in-law. All living in a little two-bedroom beach cabana about the size of that table right there. Tight quarters. Needless to say, proximity was beginning to take a toll on my serenity. Um... 
so I was stuck there with that woman, you know. Remember how Roy talks about that woman? It was her. It was my mother-in-law. That's what he didn't tell you. And I decided to call. <laughs> Not really. Sorry, Roy. Um, I decided to call an essay and see if by some chance there was an essay meeting. Uh, you know, I needed help in dealing with her. I, I was I was fine. Oh, oh, yeah, there was a little lust kicking in. I was viewing scrambled porn, but I wasn't acting out uh, and be, being nasty to everyone, even though it was their fault and they had it coming. Well, I got a phone number of a guy named Robert in Charleston, and I heard this light lyric tenor voice tell me a little about essay in the area, and the guy sounded about 17. And I thought, oh, my God. God, would you give me a break? Who were they having answer the phone, paper boys? So I asked him about how much time he said, and in that like lyric tenor voice, he said about 12 years. And I thought, oh, that's just great. My addict clearly kicked in. He was about 14. He, he masturbated a couple of times, had a couple of pornography, and by God, he put together 12 years. What a miracle. <laughs> Little problem there. Uh, well, I attributed the buoyancy in his voice uh, to the naivete of, of age, but I did accept a ride, a help in arranging a ride to the meeting. Uh, seemingly, my hypocrisy knows no bounds. One of his sponsees picked me up, and we had a lovely little talk on the way to the meeting. The frustration of the first 90 days was clear, and of course, I chimed in with my experience, strength, and hope. Such that it was. Um, we arrived at the meeting location, and I got out of the car, and there he was. Uh, I spotted this tall, graying man with the thickest glasses I have ever seen in my life. And as handsome and as vibrant a man as Robert Id is, he is not, and I do repeat, not 26, by a long shot. But if any of you know him, you can verify what I'm saying. His skin was translucent. His eyes were jumping out of his head, and he did indeed have the voice of a young adult male in his mid-twenties. Friends, his lights were on. And someone in the program, this program used to call that the essay shine. Uh, and uh, some of you have it right now. And uh, I wish you'd stop it because I can't see anything. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, he and I sat down to a lunch, and I asked him to be my sponsor. And, and he explained to me what his understanding of sponsorship was, and he told me very simply, we are going to work the steps. He had a southern accent. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> I'd worked them before, so that wasn't any big deal. You know, I'd work them again, be no big deal. Might learn a thing or two. Uh, he read me the little pamphlet on sponsorship, and we made an arrangement to start the steps in a few weeks since he was finishing up with another guy. Okay, fine. This was about the summer of 2002. And we started working the steps, and, uh, and, and after a few hits and misses, uh, like, like I'd call late and I wouldn't have the appropriate literature in front of me. And, uh, you know, this man, I have to tell you about him, he has real boundaries, and I was expected to honor them, or I would hear a dial tone. Uh, I heard a couple of those. And uh, the goal, you see, is not sobriety. Sobriety is the foundation. The goal in this program is a spiritual experience as mentioned in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you want a great description of what that is, and you're new and you're confused about a spiritual experience, and you think it's some kind of a sudden upheaval, no, no, I want you to go to the big book of Alcoholics and turn to the appendix and look for the heading that says spiritual experience and read that. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to work one step a week, 
And I was expected to listen to the Joe and Charlie tapes. Some of you know about those. Read the Hazelden pamphlets and the Charlie, Joe and Charlie tapes that correspond with the step we're going to work. I was expected to memorize some prayers. The serenity prayer, the third step prayer, the seventh step prayer, and the eleventh step prayer. And let me tell you, that eleventh step prayer takes some time. <laughs> we read from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous where the, Anonymous, uh, thank you. Uh, where the steps first originated and from the 12 and 12 of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I read, I was expected to change the words as we went along, further enhancing my abilities to concentrate. New thing. Drinking became lusting or acting out. Uh, alcoholic became sexaholic. Bacchus became Eros. John Barleycorn became Polly the Perv. That was, that was mine. I, I, I really liked that one. Thank you. Lots of work. It was, no, it was a lot of work. I needed the work. I needed the concentration. I needed to work these steps and not play around with them and, and, and mess around around the periphery and see what I could get away with. Uh, so about five weeks down the line, it came time for, four weeks down the line, it came time for my fourth step, and I was given two weeks to finish my fourth step, and I actually finished it on time. That was one of the miracles of recovery because that phrase actually meant something. When he said call at 7 o'clock, I did not call at 7.01 because he'd hang up on me. I called at 6.59. Um, so it came time for the fifth step, and he graciously uh, came up to visit me in New Jersey and stayed in our house. And we had the date scheduled. We went to a park, and we sat out on a beautiful day, and I spilled my guts. This wasn't the first time I told my story, nor was it the first time I'd read my fourth step as a fifth step. But see, my understanding of the fifth step has become a little different because it's right out of the big book of alcoholics, and I'm, I'm going to read it to you. We have a written inventory, and we are prepared for a long talk. See, it's two different things. We explain to our partner, the sponsor, what we are about to do and why we have to do it. So what is that? Is that reading the fourth? I, I'm not sure, but I don't think so. The answer is two pages early on page 73. But they had not learned enough humility, fearlessness, and honesty in the sense we find it necessary until they had told someone else all their life story. Okay, that's something. And then there's this amazing little passage on page 75 that says, We pocket our pride and we go to it, illuminating every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. And what comes next is some of my favorite writing in the entire big book. We talk about the ninth-step promises all the time in, in Sexaholics Anonymous. What we don't talk, is about, talk about is the fifth-step promises. One, once we have taken this step withholding nothing, we are delighted. Delighted? I haven't been delighted since I got Rock'em Sock'em Robots in my 12th birthday. <laughs> delighted? Wow! We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. We begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. Spiritual experience. That's the goal, right? The feeling that the lust problem has disappeared will often come strongly. And here's my personal favorite. We feel we are on the broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Now, friends, that's only the big book. There's seven more in the 12 and 12, and the last one says, says this. Many an essay, once agnostic and atheistic, tells us that it was during this stage of step five that he actually felt the presence of God. The presence of God. Wow. That is phenomenal. 
And more times than not, and when working this step, I've seen it with my own eyes, a man will be given away his step five, and if there's some point in it, I don't know, usually sometime it's around his fear list or something, he looks like he lost five pounds. His face goes flush and his eyes get misty, and it's just um, the, the greatest miracle. I wish it for every single one of you. Uh, I don't even know what to say there. I'm just leave it as it is. Now, I'm going to need your indulgence for this next part of my talk because it's a little weird. So please, if you just stay with me, I'm not meaning to be controversial or confrontively confrontive at all. This is something I got to do, and it's something I'm going to say, and and you stay with me. My understanding about my fourth step was that I would tell my story and read my list if I needed to, and I needed to. I read the list to make sure that I had told all my le- my life story. The fourth step guide of the Big Book of Alcoholics has uh, Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous has four lists: a resentment list, a fear list, a sexual harms list, and this sort of miscellaneous list called harms other than sexual. The instructions are very specific: list all the resentments, persons, institutions, or principles, and that's the that's the list. Now, after listening to the Joe and Charlie tapes, I learned that we as Westerners read from left to right, and in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's not specific. But what I was instructed to do is to list my resentments, all of them, top to bottom. Just go as fast as I could and list them all. Uh, Then, the second column, I was to list the causes of my resentments in the next column. Then, in the third column... That was for how it affects me, and that's, some, that's usually something in the, on the, along the lines of the self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, or personal relationships, including sex. Simple enough. Then in the fourth column, I listed my part in it. Why? Simple. The typical addict mind will go left to right, do the resentment, the why, what it affects, and my part, and then see where this is going. Stop after two and say, wow. I just feel great. I just feel better already. I'm having a spiritual experience. Let's stop it right there. (laughs) Here we go. Somewhere towards the top of my resentment resentment list, I had written Sexaholics Anonymous. I resented SA for abandoning me when I met my wife. It affected my personal relations, self-esteem, and security. And what was my part? Nothing. (laughs) I didn't do anything. Now, if you're new in the program and you're scared to death of a four-step, that right there ought to alleviate your fears completely because there is no such thing as a perfect fourth step. There is no place in Nashville reserved for your fourth step, okay? And there's not, not on Roy's wall either. Uh, when I read this resentment to my sponsor, I said the words, the program of Sexaholics Anonymous, and my sponsor stopped me on the spot and he said, wait a minute. The program is perfect. The program was inspired by God and therefore infallible and could not possibly have abandoned you. More likely, you abandon it, but we'll set that aside for the time being. If anything, if anything, the fellowship failed you and because, because it's made up of, fellow, of fallible men. Well, it was then and only then that I could forgive the fellowship. I, look, I know how weird that, sta- that sounds. I, I don't have the strength to forgive all you people for something you don't know anything about. But you know, sometimes it's not until you actually forgive first until the answers come. The answers will come if your own house is in order, right? So I saw in step six and seven that there were character defects that I had not addressed, pride and defiance being the biggest of the two. 
And a while later, while working the steps with a sponsee, I finally found my part in it. I was listening to that tenseness in his voice, the fear and the strain of the disease, and immediately my mind went back to those phone calls to Jess L., my soon-to-be ex-sponsor, guys in the program, hopeful but not to be sponsors, and I heard my own voice and the fear, the defiance, the arrogance, the love to the point of inebriation, which could very easily be mistaken for lust. Um, I've met this woman, she's really wonderful, and I'm going to date her because, well, because. By the way, I still feel that way about her, and coffee seems to do the trick. (laughs) Thank you. So here's what I didn't say, right? This is the stuff that I should have said and didn't get a chance to. I love her. I have prayed and asked God to remove this obsession. He did, but the love remained. I prayed for God to pick a woman for me, and I kept my word, and I ran like my butt was on fire and the first op- at the first opportunity of a relationship, and it was this one. But she was still in my heart. So where can I run from my own heart? When I'm with her, I feel the presence of God, and I feel his smile. And never one time, not one time, did I ever ask, so what do you think? Because I already knew. I had already answered the questions in my own mind. So what I would say was, I need you to sponsor me in this relationship. Now, come on. Would you sponsor anybody to talk like that? No. No, you wouldn't. Then I would tell a little of the story, but I'd leave out the spiritual angle because I was quite sure that they would question my ability at seven months of sobriety to hear from God, and rightly so. I didn't tell anybody I was in love because I knew what they would say because I'd said it to people myself. What do you know about love? I didn't say any of those things I said earlier because I thought I knew all the answers before the questions were asked. My mind-reading skills had kicked in, and I was going at warp nine. So here's the moment. I need to make amends to you as my fellowship and my brothers and sisters. I was wrong back then. I didn't tell you the whole truth because I was deathly afraid you'd make fun of me. And I cheated you out of the joy of my relationship and subsequent marriage to a really terrific woman. And I'm asking your forgiveness. And I hope I get it. Doesn't matter. I'm going to make it up to you. Thank you. Thank you. Did you hear that? Keep coming back. So moving on. So what am I like now? (laughs) Obviously insane. Uh, I have the joy of working steps with men, and I'm watching them change in front of my very eyes. I've worked through the steps at least nine times that I can count. One guy I worked all the way through step eight, read through step nine in less than two weeks, and ladies and gentlemen, that guy's still sober. Uh, I have had the joy of 12-stepping guys in my business, and folks, uh, I work in the entertainment industry, and lust is prevalent. Most of whom, most of these men, I have no idea if that seed germinated, but I'll tell you one thing, I know I planted the sucker. Uh, I travel a lot. I travel, I get to travel with my family and, and I have been given the joy and the honor of spending time with men in SA and AA in, 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 in Atlanta, Charleston, South Carolina, Baltimore, Washington DC, Chautauqua, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Munich and Berlin, Germany, and London, England. I've shared my story in a few of these places, and best of all, the absolute best that this program ever gets, I feel like I am indeed an instrument of God. Around the spring of 2006, this wasn't too long ago, uh, I had a job in Munich, Germany, and I uh, 
I got there and I was ready to start rehearsals. I was jet lagged out of my mind. Uh, I walked in and so the general director came in. Um, he was German, so uh, he he had a German accent. Uh, I don't know how that works. <laughs> he said, "Mr. Delavan, it, it gives me great pain to tell you that uh, we have, we're going to have to cancel the first performance and probably the second. You see, we're having a strike." A strike. It's the same word. It's so I, I didn't have to ask for a translation. So, so hey, what does strike mean? I knew what that meant. That means I was going to lose two fees. And, 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 folks, I get paid per performance. So I'm losing some dough there. So I get, I, you know, I get crazy for about ten minutes. I went out and I laid down on a bench waiting for my part to come up. And, and I woke up with this strange sensation that I was in the hand of God. And you know what? If God couldn't, if God has gotten me through all of this and chooses to abandon me here, what kind of a God is He, right? So um, I came home. I, they said we'd provide you with a. We will provide you with a plane ticket. I'm sorry, I forgot the German accent. So I came home, and it was a Monday night. So I got and I said, honey, I, I'm coming home. I guess I'm going to go to the meeting tonight. So I went to the Monday night Dover meeting. I was so happy to see my friends. And there's a, there's a guy here tonight that said, hey, well, since you're home, why don't you come to the Wednesday, Wednesday Metuchen meeting and speak? I thought, perfect. So I went out there and uh, I walked in and I took my place across the table. I looked down the length of this rather large, maybe 15-foot table, and I saw a guy that's in my business that I have been praying for for at least three years. There he was. I was about to tell my story, and I had not one inkling of fear or trepidation. I said, well, here we go. <laughs> and I told my story, and we greet each other afterwards. i, I got to tell you, friends, I, I, sharing my story in a situation like that, I could have flown home. And I never felt like, I, I felt like it was literally in God's hand at that moment in time. Let's, you know, to, you know, let's just take a quick gander at my gratitude list. Now these are the things that I can directly attribute to this program. We, we've been talking a whole lot over the weekend about the benefits of the program. I'm not saying you're going to get all this stuff. I'm not going to say you're going to get any stuff at all. But what I will tell you is that if you work recovery and recovery only, everything else will fall in line. I say that to some of my sponsees, absolutely ad nauseum. I got my career of choice back. I'm an opera singer. I travel all over the world. My family travels with me. My wife homeschools. I sing amazing roles. While, while, while I was acting out, I had no possibility of doing I couldn't even dream of doing them. My voice gets better every year. I'm not, not being arrogant. That's just a fact. Why? Less and less baggage. Less and less lust. I have an unbelievable wife. I have three gorgeous boys with this woman. They are happy and they were conceived in love. They were not conceived in lust. I have a very amiable relationship with my ex-wife. That is a miracle. <laughs> I became a wood carver. Now, why, how did that happen? I don't have any training in wood carving. But the steps set that desire free. I worked the steps on my creativity and that happened. I became a really decent guitarist. And I was able to afford some really nice guitars. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but it meant a hell of a lot to me. We have a lovely condominium we found by the inspiration of God and of my understanding. I have relationships with men in this program where if I called them in the middle of the night, they would be in their car before I could tell them it wasn't an emergency. (laughs) Now, what is that about? That is about the program and the fellowship of Sexaholics Anonymous. In our meeting here in New Jersey, uh, when someone has an anniversary, we ask them, so, well, who are you and how would you do it? So I'm going to answer that question. How did I do it? 
And the truth is I didn't really. God did it for me. The first thing I had to do was I had to hit a bottom. And if you haven't hit a bottom yet, uh, it's, it's very clear in the 12 and 12, the first step of the 12 and 12, you have the, the choice to raise your bottom. And I would recommend that you remember, remember the pain and the progression of your last acting out spree and call that bottom and get to work. I got and I used the sponsor. I worked the steps, all of them, in order. <laughs> I pray and I meditate every day. I had a spiritual experience. I'm having a, I'm having a spiritual experience right now. Friends, I'm probably going to stay sober today. I, you know, don't you know, don't take bets, but I'm probably going to stay sober today. This is a great honor, and I wish it for every one of you. By the way, if there are any gentlemen from L.A. or the Barcelona, Spain area, I would really like to talk to you after this meeting because I'm going there soon, and I don't want to leave without phone numbers, okay? Thanks. So my hope for the future is really pretty simple. I, I want to ho- have an ongoing spiritual experience. I tend to get up, get caught up in the cares of this world. Oh, my God, what if I don't get to record? <laughs> so... If you're listening to the tape, I'm pointed over to the tape machine because I'm being recorded. Oh, what if I don't retire with enough money? What if I don't become a big star? What if, what if, I, 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 me, 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 me. So my goal in this program is progressive victory over lust, continuing spiritual experience, and a happy and contented sobriety based on the maintenance of my spiritual experience. And that's right out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous program literature. One of the nights that promises says fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. It does not say economic insecurity will leave us. It says the fear of it will leave us. That's actually better if you think about it. I know guys making 15 grand a year that don't have the fear of economic insecurity, and I know millionaires who are terrified they're going to lose it all. The big book says that these promises will materialize if we work for them. Clearly, that's the one I'm working on now. If you walk away from this meeting and you're thinking, wow, Mark is so whatever, honest, cool, ugly, weird, funny, powerful, whatever, I have failed. My job tonight is simply to carry the message of recovery and tell you that God is for the sexaholic. And my hope is that you walk away saying, wow, what an amazing God we serve here in Sexaholics Anonymous. I thank you for your time. It's been a great honor. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. 
Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.